0: Thank you for tuning in with us at Bayou City Fellowship Tomball, a community that's radically focused on Jesus. Advent is a season for reflective preparation to celebrate the coming of Jesus. During this season, we desire to grow as followers and disciples of the light of the world. Join us for this week's lesson as we learn and pray to be more like Christ. Well, in 1964, um, an a antiques dealer bought a small item for $6, and the item was, was this. Uh, it's a small, little, um, unattractive piece of, of material. I have an image of it. Bearded Look over there real quick. A small, little, insignificant, little, bearded figure with a sword, um, and it was stored in a drawer for about 55 years. Stored in a drawer, this small, little, insignificant um, piece of material. Yet an individual um, named Lewis Wardner saw the piece, and he realized that it was worth about 1.3 million dollars at an auction. And the owner of the family took it to the Salisbury Auction House at L- in London for an assessment. The discovery was that this three-and-a-half-inch warrior, this bearded figure with a sword in his right hand, um, was, uh, it, it was equivalent in modern chess to, to a rook. But it was, it was carved out of walrus tusks um, many, many years previously, and it was a lost um, artifact as part of this original chessboard. And this one person, the owner of it says, my mother was very fond of the chessmen and she admired the intricacies and the quirkiness. She believed that it was special and thought perhaps it could even be, have some sort of significance. Cool. (laughs) For many years, uh, it resided in a drawer in her home where it had been carefully wrapped in a small bag and from time to time, she would remove the chess piece and look at it But this Lewis Chessman, that's what it's called, the Lewis Chessman, was steeped in folklore and is a symbol of European history. This small, insignificant thing wrapped in a bag in a chest drawer worth over $1.3 million. Why was it so easily overlooked? That's my question. Well, it's small. And you look at it, it's kind of dirty. I mean, it doesn't look all that impressive. You probably would not spend a million dollars on this item. And it was in a drawer. It was in the wrong place. It seemed insignificant. It seemed unimpressive. And it looked pretty mundane. See, in this Christmas season, I think many of us, as we think, oh, good Lord, I think I got it. <laughs> Praise you, Jesus. Would have been a long morning. (laughs) In this Christmas season, uh, it can easily... Okay, a little help, a little help. Wow. Hero. Wow. Wow. Welcome to Tomball. Um, In this Christmas season, it can be easily easy to overlook the most significant event in history. I mean, what we're talking about in this Christmas season, the fact that, that God came down, that, that the eternal God stepped in to history. But as you think about that moment and the people that were observing that moment, it was, it was less significant to them as you think. I mean, most people weren't all that aware that this event was happening in world history, that, that God was stepping in as a man. GK Chesterton writes, God came down. The hands that made the sun and stars were too small to reach the huge heads of the cattle. Omnipotence and impotence, divinity and infancy. It is it is not unreasonable to call it unique. Bethlehem is emphatically a place where extremes meet. And Philippians 2 really talks about this reality that God came down, that the eternal God took on humility to step into, to step into humanity. And that's the quality of Jesus that we're going to focus on this week, the reality of the humility of, of God coming down. And so this morning we're going to look at two realities, the, a definition of humility that we're really going to find from Philippians chapter two but also a demonstration of humility that we'll see as we look at um, Matthew chapter one and the genealogy of Jesus in particular. And so as we look, as we begin, we wanna define what humility is. Now if you were to think of a definition of humility personally, what what would you say are the elements of a truly humble person? What, What does humility look like? Well, Paul defines it for us, for us in this section, he says, do nothing from selfish ambition or empty conceit, but with humility, consider one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look after your own interests, but look after the interests of others. And that's the definition I would really give us from, from this text. What is humility? It means that I, I, I'm not merely looking after my own interests. I am, I'm more concerned. I'm more concerned about what what is going on in the lives of others. I consider others as more important than myself. That's truly humility. I've heard it said this way, and I'm, that, that it's not thinking less of yourself, it's just thinking about yourself less. That's the true definition of humility. And here's, here's how he defines it. There's really a mindset that Jesus had in humbling himself. He says, he says this, do nothing from selfish ambition. That stands for that, that human fallness, that self-aggrandizing, that, that's thinking great about myself. He says, or do nothing out of vain conceit. That's empty glory. That's glorying in, in what you can do. But he says, but in, in humility, and, and that interesting word, he chose that word humility, which, which in Roman culture was not considered a virtue. It was actually considered more of a vice. It was a shortcoming. He says, in humility, consider others as more important than yourselves. Don't merely look after your own interests, but look after, after the interests of others. Gordon Fee in his commentary writes this, humility is thus not to be confused with false modesty. True humility is actually not self-focused at all. Um, C.S. Lewis in his book, um, Mere Christianity, writes it this way, do not imagine that if you... If you meet a really humble person, that man uh, will be what most people call humble nowadays. Uh, He will not be a sort of greasy, smarmy person who is always telling you that, that he's humble, of course. He is nobody. Probably all you will think about him is that he seemed cheerful, an intelligent chap who took real interest in what you said to him. If you dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of a person who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. That's really the true definition of humility. It's not this inward. I'm, I'm. I'm trying to be humble or or think less of myself. It means I'm really not thinking about myself at all. I'm thinking about them. I'm thinking about other people, and so how do, you, how do you know, how do you know if I have humility or if I actually have pride? And I would ask you this question. Do I consider my needs as more important than others? Do I consider my wants first? And all you have to do is get into traffic on 249 or I-10, and you can answer that question pretty clearly. Do I consider this person who's cutting me off in their needs as more important than my own? mm um, I don't know where you're going, but I don't care where you're going. And I will tail you, and I will honk at you, and I will be upset that you cut me off. And we're inconsiderate in this whole thing, right? But, but we do that all the time. Pride rises up within all of us. C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, writes it this way. Um, it is pride, the wish to be richer than, the, uh, than some other rich man, and still more the wish for power. For, of course, power is what pride really enjoys. There's nothing that it makes a man feel so superior to others as being ab- able to move them about like toy soldiers. What is it that makes political leaders or whole nation go, demanding more and more? Pride is competitive by its very nature. That is why it goes on and on. If I'm a proud man, then as long as there is one man in the whole world more powerful or richer or cleverer than I am, he is my rival and my enemy. See, as long as I'm looking out there and I'm considering how I measure up what I don't have, as long as I'm considering what is, what is it about me, what can I get, then I do not have the mind of Christ. It says, but there's something very different within Jesus. He he didn't look after his own interests. He looked after the interests of others. And in the ultimate demonstration of humility, it says that he stepped into humanity. It says that he had a mindset that was different. And then he had a releasing that is required. It says, have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. It's, it's so interesting. This, this is one of, the, one of the key passages in Philippians that talks about deity stepping into humanity, and it says, although he existed in the form, that word morphe, he, he was the form of God. He was the exact nature of his heavenly father. Although he existed in that and deserved honor and praise and glory and accolade, although he existed in the form of God, he didn't, he didn't regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. That word grasped um, means seized or held on to. He says, it wasn't that he just held on to his rights to use for his own advantage. He says, instead, although he possessed full deity, he released it to step into humanity. And I don't know if we fully grasp the significance of this moment, this mindset that led to a releasing. Because for most of us, we've never had things that good as being the universal ruler of everything and having to leave that and stepped into a baby's body. We never had to do that, to leave something that significant to come to something that small, but we've, but we have experienced this in small ways. Um, for some of you, you enjoy camping. That's something that you're really excited about doing. You love to bring people there. And so when you think about camping, you're thinking rustic. And so this is the image in your mind uh, when you think about rustic camping. You wanna leave the comforts of your house and you wanna step into a tent that looks something like this, right? And you're just like, this is amazing. I mean, I, I have a nice home, I have air conditioning, but what I really wanna do is step out into nature and just get there. And, and others of you are going like, false. Um, I have a job, I have a mortgage, why would I want to leave the glory of my home and step into that tent. There's no way I'm stepping into that tent. So your idea of camping is a little bit different. You have pictures like this in mind. Of, say, Let's go camping. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Let's, uh, let, let's do that. I think that we have a tent. And uh, the next photo, you're like, no, well, maybe that's a little too rustic. I'm, I'm seeing uh, too much of the outside inside. So it may, may look more like this. Yeah, that's, that's camping. Like, that's perfect. And some of you, you're like, okay, not, well, even, even a little bit too rustic, it's still a tent. Like, could it, could it rain on? me i don't know and, and so this is really your picture of camping you're like baby i want to take you camping yes let's go camping there with the hot tub and the, like that's your idea of of glamping and for, and for many of us we we wouldn't want to leave the comforts of our home to step into something so uncomfortable as a as an earthly tent that is set up but the eternal glorious god who eternally existed, had a mindset that caused him to release his rights, to release all that he deserved, to take on humanity. And so what did that look like? How did he demonstrate? If that's what humility is, releasing my rights to step into to serve others. If that's really true humility, how did he demonstrate it? When Matthew chapter one, it's the genealogy of Jesus. For most of you, it's the part of the Bible that you skip. You're like, I don't get these names. I'm not looking for baby names at the moment. I will skip and move on. And that's what most of us do when we come to the beginning of Matthew, but that's because we're missing the significance of this genealogy. And I'm not gonna belabor every name and every detail, but I I do want us to see a few things from this genealogy that show how Jesus demonstrated true humility. It says in verse 1, this is the book of the genealogy of Jesus, the son of David. Charles Vandal in his commentary writes, Remember that the the overarching purpose of this account of the life of Jesus is to demonstrate that Jesus is the king, Israel's long-awaited Messiah, It makes perfect sense then that Matthew would begin this document with proof that Jesus was not only the legal heir of the royal line of David, but also the heir of the covenant of blessing of Abraham. So all of this is historically important. If you were a Jewish person and you heard that there was a Jewish Messiah coming, you would ask the question, show me the family line. It's like the royalty in England. If you want to prove that you're part of that royal line, you need to look at the royal lineage. And this is proof that Jesus is in that royal line. But I want you to to see a couple of details in this royal line that you might have overlooked before. The first thing that we see that Jesus in demonstrating humility is this, that he released recognizability. See, when your God and you break into human history, it's obvious. That's why in the Old Testament, all these moments, when God breaks into human history, people are falling on their face, people are bowing, people are afraid, because when God breaks into the story, it's dramatic, and people respond appropriately. But here's what we see. This is what Augustine writes. He, that's Jesus, was created of a mother whom he created. He was carried by hands that he formed, he cried in the manger in wordless infancy. He, the word, without whom all human eloquence is mute, stepped in and became a baby. See, he, he became unrecognizable. And you're familiar with the Christmas story, we'll look at more detail over the coming weeks. But eternal God becoming a baby became completely unrecognizable. To the world. Who is this God that took on this form? He added humanity to his deity. Um, He didn't have what's called the halo effect. Psychologists talk about the the halo effect, which which basically means this that it's an error in reasoning in which an impression formed on a single trait or characteristic is allowed to influence multiple judgments. It's, It's the halo effect. And In ancient Renaissance art, often because Jesus seemed so normal, they wanted to show a significance to him. They wanted to show that he stood out. And so they would literally create a halo around Jesus. And so here's a couple of the moments that you can, you can see this in some Renaissance art. Here's the first image. Um, this is... Um, from it, Tintoretto, it's the miracle of Jesus. And, and you can't really see the halo really close. Jesus is right there in the center, but I kind of zoomed in for you and you can kind of see a little bit of that halo above Jesus because they wanted you to see, no, there's something significant about Jesus. He's the central characteristic. Um, here's another um, image from Renaissance art. You can see this is um, the Madonna uh, of the book by um, Sandro, and you can see very clearly the halos in this moment. They, they want you to, to see that, no, no, this is, this is Mary, and this is the baby. They're a really big deal. But when Jesus stepped into human history, there was no halo above him. There wasn't Shekinah glory around him. He was a normal infant with normal problems. The eternal God, the infinite God, became vulnerable he needed to have his diaper changed he needed to be nursed and held and swaddled the infinite god became vulnerable and the infinite god became normal normal he wasn't impressive you would walk right by him you would see this this couple raising this small child and you think to yourself what is so significant about that But not only did he release recognizability, he secondly, he released respectability. He released respectability. It says that this is the book of the genealogy of Jesus, and that word genealogy could be translated genesis or birth or beginning. And in this moment, what he does is he puts himself within the family line of a Jewish people. And as you look at the, the, the family line, uh, what, what's, what's fascinating about it is that, is that as you see it, you may see, okay, these are the names of the heroes of the faith, but that's actually not what Matthew is doing in this section. As he looks at the different people that are all part of the family line, he makes sure that we know the details of those people in that family line. See, in, in ancient uh, genealogies, oftentimes you would um, adjust them to make yourself look better. Herod the Great is known to adjust the people within his family line so that he himself looks better. And sometimes you do the same thing. Like you may be at a family outing and then you got that crazy uncle that's like, hey, what's going on? And you're like, whose uncle is that? And you're like, I have no idea. He's not part of my my family line. And there's people that you wouldn't want to take credit for in your own family line. You kind of like um, remove the stain of that person so that you look a little bit better. And that's what people did in ancient times. They would kind of remove the names so that they would look a little bit better. But that's not what Jesus does in this family line. In this family line, we have failures. We have murderers. We have pagans. We have prostitutes. And he lists them all right there. Abraham, if you're not familiar with his story, he tried to sell his wife to Egypt a couple times because he was a little bit scared. He was like, no, no, just tell him you're my sister. okay? He did it twice. Isaac was a liar. Judah, it says Judah and his brothers, um, sold Joseph into human trafficking. Like, not a good situation. And David. In verse 6 it says, And Jesse, the father of David, the king, and David was the father of Solomon. And and look at this little detail. By the wife of Uriah. Um, David had Uriah killed. Because an affair that he had with Bathsheba. If there's a, a detail you want to leave off of your family story, it might be that one. But he puts it right there in the mix. You see this list of dysfunctional men. And you see four women listed. You see Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. And of course Mary at the end. Um, Tamar, feigned being a prostitute to sleep with her father-in-law. Sorry, kids. Um, Rahab was a prostitute. Ruth came from Moab, which was a country at odds with Israel, so she was an outsider. Bathsheba became the wife of of David after an affair. And you look at this, you're like, okay, those, those are details that aren't really necessary. Why include them? Why not clean up the story a little bit. And then you see three sets of 14 generations. Um, and here's what Swindoll writes. He says, the history leading up to the exile in Babylon includes decline, degeneration, apostasy, idolatry, and ultimately defeat, ending in destruction, and deportation. Why include these details? Is because Jesus is stepping into this family line with a lot of brokenness a lot of darkness and he's not stepping in to say no no it really wasn't that big of a deal he's saying no no humanity is very very broken there are things that are very very wrong in the world and i'm not i'm not too perfect to not step right into the middle of it with the grace and the love and the humility to see what these people need because their lives, I consider more important than my own. And although it is a very, very broken line, I will step into the midst of the broken story so that I can bring healing. He wasn't too pious to enter the family dynamics. And listen, he's not too pious to enter your family dynamics. Some of us think that we need to clean ourselves up before Jesus would be willing to enter our story. So I hear these statements all the time like, I, I, I need to get back to church, and then I'll, and, and maybe like when I stop doing these things, like I'll be a better person and then I can come back into church. And let me just tell you, that's that's a lie. Jesus steps into people's lives at their worst point because he knows that we cannot clean ourselves. He knows that we can't fix the broken parts within us. If we could fix the broken parts within us, we wouldn't need Jesus. He comes to broken people in a broken world and says, I'm entering into your story because I want you to know I love you and I have the tools to fix what was broken that you can't fix within yourselves. And listen, the generational brokenness in your life, you have inherited a lot of that. But that doesn't mean that Jesus can't step in and bring healing and hope. He steps into the story and that's where we see number three, that he took responsibility. He took responsibility for our sins. Any Jewish person looking at this genealogy would be asking the question, are you really the one that can save us? And all throughout Jewish history, there was a hope that someone would come in to fix everything that was broken. I mean, there was a hope that the patriarchs would lead us in the right direction, but they were a mess. There was a hope that the kings would come and and lead us into a better place, that would lead us in a better, but but the kings were a mess. There's the true king that comes, Jesus Christ, who took responsibility for your sins and mine and steps into our broken line to save us, to free us, to restore everything that was broken. Why? Because he humbled himself, knowing that we needed it. And scripture says he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He steps into our story to bring healing and hope. And really that's the peace that we need. See, in in this genealogy, you see um, 14 generations. And there's a hope all throughout, a seed of hope all planted throughout the the scripture that someone would step in at the right time to bring healing and hope. And each generation, people were saying, well, maybe this is the Messiah. Maybe this one will lead us there. And and Jesus says, no, no, it, it, it all culminates in me. It all culminates in me. And in this Christmas season, there is not a gift under the tree There is not anything that can be bought that will give you what you most need, which is the king of the universe to step into your life, to be in relationship with you, to heal you from the inside out, all of our brokenness, so that we can be in right relationship with God and right relationship with one another. We need that gift in this season. The people that were baptized this morning that's what they are declaring. I believe that Jesus died in my place for my sins, took responsibility for my sins, and is calling me to live a new life. So I'll give you three application statements as we close. The first is this Jesus entered the story in humility to demonstrate his approachability, he came down. And stepped into the story so that you know you can walk right up to him and have a conversation. No one is too far gone to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. So maybe this morning is the first time you say, okay, I want to approach Jesus for who he is in all of my mess. Secondly, Jesus isn't afraid of our tainted past. He's here to forgive and forge a new future. That's what you see in this story. That's what you see in this genealogy. The brokenness of the past does not prevent us from having a new and more beautiful future. That's why Jesus breaks in. Number three, for those of us that are believers, what do you need to release so that people might see Jesus more clearly through you? This last one is really for believers. What are we holding on to that's preventing people from seeing Jesus through us? What's stopping us from leaving our comforts and stepping into the lives of others so we might demonstrate the love and nearness of Jesus Christ? Would you pray with me? Thank you for listening to today's message. We hope that you feel encouraged. To stay up to date with our current sermon series, you can subscribe with us wherever you listen to podcasts. If you would like to find more ways to get involved with the Bayou City family, visit us online at bayoucityfellowship.com or download the Bayou City Fellowship Tomball app to find community within the body of Christ.